ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد Today then we're on the final chapter with regards to fasting here. Bab Sawmit Tatawa' wa ma an sawmihi. The chapter regarding supererogatory fasting, optional fasting, and the days when it's impermissible to fast. So first we have the hadith of Abu Qatada radiyallahu anhu. أن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم سئل عن صوم يوم عرفة قال يكفر السنة الماضية والباقية وسئل عن صيام يوم عشورة قال يكفر السنة الماضية وسئل عن صوم يوم الاثنين فقال ذاك يوم ولدت فيه وبعثت فيه أو أنزل علي فيه In this narration, the Prophet ﷺ was asked about the day of Arafah, about fasting on the day of Arafah. He said it expiates the previous year of sins and expiates the upcoming year of sins. Then he was asked about fasting on the day of Ashura. He said, it expiates the sins of the previous year. And then he was asked about fasting on Mondays. He said, that is the day that I was born in and the day that I was sent as a messenger or the day that the revelation began upon me. So these chapters now are talking about the optional fasting and the reward for some of those optional fastings. Firstly here it mentions the day of Arafah. When is the day of Arafah? It is the day before Eid al-Adha. The day before Eid al-Adha when they are in Hajj on the 10th day is the day when they would go and do the tawaf and the sa'i and the shaving of the head and the stoning. That is the day of Eid. And the day before that, the 9th of Dhul Hijjah is the day of Arafah. The narration tells us about the virtue of fasting on the day of Arafah. That it will expiate the sins of your previous year and also expiate the sins of the upcoming year. As for the previous year being expiated, that's clear. But how does the upcoming year get expiated to? How would the upcoming year be expiated when it hasn't occurred yet? You haven't done any sins yet. 
What's the meaning of that being expiated also? Anyone? Possibly. It means that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will decree goodness for you for that next year, righteousness for you, and give you the ability to stay away from sins in the first place. Will give you the ability to stay away from sins. And even if you do sins, then Allah will give you that ability to repent and to seek forgiveness. So the affairs are made easy for you in that upcoming year. The affairs are made easy for you in that upcoming year in terms of the shortcomings and the deficiencies that Allah gives you that success in either not doing the sins or even if you fall into them that you seek repentance and seek forgiveness from them. Uh, This is all dependent on a person staying away from major sins. Because all of these narrations that talk about your mind, your sins being expiated, they are talking about minor sins. Because the ayah in the Quran mentions, "In If you stay away from the major sins that we have prohibited you from, then we will expiate the minor sins. So the major sins have to be avoided. It's mentioned in other narrations. الصلوات الخمس والجمعة إلى الجمعة ورمضان إلى رمضان كفارة لما بينهن إذا اجتنبت الكبائر that the five daily prayers one prayer to the next and Jum'ah to Jum'ah and Ramadan to Ramadan they are expiators of the sins that occur in between as long as you stay away from the major sins So the minor sins can be expiated via these actions of righteousness and goodness. So the point is the first supererogatory and optional fast that is mentioned here with that great reward of the past year and the upcoming year of sins uh, forgiven or expiated, then that is the fasting on the day of Arafah. The second one mentioned here is fasting on the day of Ashura. And what is the day of Ashura? And where is that? That is the 10th of Muharram. And what is the significance of that day? So the story of Musa alayhi salam, when they fled from the Pharaoh and then they came across the Red Sea and the sea was split and Musa salam and those who were with him, the believers, they crossed and then Pharaoh, as he came in chase, the sea collapsed upon him and he was drowned and killed. So Allah saved Musa salam on that day. That is why it mentions in a hadith when the Prophet ﷺ came to Medina, he found that the Jews were fasting on that day. They were saying Allah saved 
Musa on this day. So they were fasting in honor of that day, uh, in honor or in respect or in recognition of thankfulness to Allah for saving Musa salam on that day. So the Prophet wasallam said, we are more deserving of Musa salam." So the Prophet wasallam told us to fast. But in order to oppose the Jews who are fasting, then it has been mentioned that you should add on the ninth with it. Add on the ninth with it, and there is a narration: "La in baqitu ila qabilin la asumannatasya." That if I live till next year, the Prophet ﷺ said, "If I live till next year, I'm gonna add on the ninth. I'm gonna fast the ninth as well." So a person should fast the ninth and the tenth of Muharram, um, and that is the fasting of Ashura. And uh, the expiation mentioned or the virtue and the reward mentioned of fasting that day is that it expiates the sins of the previous year. Again, that is in reference to the minor sins. So that is the virtue of that day. Then what's left is in the end of the hadith regarding Mondays. Again, the narration indicates that there is a virtue to the day of Monday and that it is mustahab to fast on Mondays. And there are three things that are mentioned about this Monday, that it was the day the Prophet ﷺ was born as well. It was the day that the Qur'an revelation began. Uh, the, the day that the revelation began upon the Prophet ﷺ, and the day that he therefore became a messenger or that revelation was given to him and the day that he was born in. So three things occurred on that day. His birth, the reveal, revelation of the Qur'an, and therefore him becoming a prophet and messenger was on that day too. But the Shaykh says, Al-Khurafiyun ahdathu bid'atan al-Mawlid. The people, they have invented the celebration of the birthday of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam though. They have invented the celebration of the birthday of the Prophet ﷺ. And one of the evidences they use in this narration, they say, look, it's the Prophet ﷺ telling us he was born on that day to indicate a virtue for that birthday. To indicate a virtue for the day that he was born and that we need to do something about it. But of course we know that is incorrect. Because if that was the case, then why didn't the Sahaba do anything about it? Can it really be the case that the Sahaba decided not to do anything about that, even though they knew this narration, but we're going to come along and do something about it? Now we better than the Sahaba? Is our understanding better than the understanding of the Sahaba? Of course it is not. So there are three days mentioned there in terms of optional fasting and the virtues of it. Then we have... The hadith of Abu Ayyub al-Ansari radiyallahu anhu anna Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam aqal man sama ramadhan thumma atba'ahu sitan min shawwal kana kasayam al-dahr that whomsoever fasts Ramadan then follows it up with six days of shawwal then it is as though he has fasted the year. Hadith in Muslim. 
So this narration is now telling us about six optional fasts that can be done in the month of Shawwal, meaning immediately after Ramadan, the next month. Hadith says, whoever finishes Ramadan, does Ramadan, then follows it up with six days in the next month of Shawwal, then it will be as though he has a year's of fasting, a year's worth of fasting. There are some rules to this though. One of the main ones is that you have to finish Ramadan first before being able to do those days for this reward. So if you got days left to make up, a woman for example was on the period, she has a week to make up. A brother was maybe traveling for a few days, has them days left to make up. After Eid, you have to make up those days first. The woman has to make up her days from the period first. Make up those days that are outstanding from Ramadan first. Quickly as well, before the month finishes, the month of Shawwal, the next month. And then get the six days in after that too. So imagine now, for example, a woman has seven days left to make up from the period. She wants to do this six days of Shawwal for the reward. She's going to have to do 13 days in this next month. Finish off her seven days of Ramadan. Once they are finished, then she can get those six days of Shawwal in before Shawwal comes to an end. And then she'll have that reward of the fasting of the year. Same for anybody else who has some days left to make up. Get those done first. Once they are done, then you can do these six for this reward. You can't do these six and expect this reward if you've still got days of Ramadan left to make up yet. Because the narration says, مَنْ صَامَ رَمَضَانِ ثُمَّ أَتْبَعَهُ سِتًّا مِنْ Whoever fasts Ramadan then follows it up with six days. Meaning whoever finishes Ramadan then after that does six days. Not that you've still got days left to make up from Ramadan. It means you haven't done Ramadan yet. You haven't finished Ramadan yet, that means. So, for this reward, you must complete your Ramadan and any outstanding days, then do those six days in this next month of Shawwal. And it can be at any time in that month. It doesn't have to be six in a row. It can be split up, one here, one there, couple here, couple there, as long as the six days are done in this month, in this next month of Shawwal. And the reward for that is the reward of a year. It's as though the person has been fasting for a year. And how is that? Because every good deed has 10 rewards multiplied by 10. So when you do a month's worth of fasting in Ramadan, 30 days, it's the equivalent of or as though you have done 300 days. And when you do those 6 days of Shawwal, as though you have done 60 days. And when you add that up, 360 a year. So whoever does Ramadan then follows it up with just six days of the next month. It's as though you have the whole year. Also, it's mentioned about the fasting of the Prophet ﷺ that he used to do a lot of optional fasting outside of Ramadan. He used to do a lot of optional fasting outside of Ramadan. It's mentioned in the hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha. Qalat, Kana Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam yasumu hatta naqula la yuftar. 
ويفطر حتى نقول لا يصوم وما رأيت رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم استكمل صيام شهر قط إلا رمضان وما رأيته في شهر أكثر منه صياما في شعبان متفق عليه ولفظ لمسلم Aisha radiallahu anha, she says that sometimes the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam used to fast so much, meaning outside of Ramadan now, used to fast so much that we used to think he's never going to take a day off. That he's fasting every day so much. We used to think, or we used to say, is he never going to take a day off? And then he would take so many days off at certain times, you would think that we would say that he's never fasting, he's not doing any optional fasts. So there would be times when the Prophet ﷺ did a lot, and then there would be times when the Prophet ﷺ didn't do fasting. And she says, I never saw the Prophet ﷺ do a full month except Ramadan. That was the only time he fasted a full consecutive month. But she says, I never saw him fasting more than in the month of Sha'ban. I never saw him fasting more in any other month outside of Ramadan, of course, except in the month of Sha'ban. So this again indicates now the virtue of fasting in the month of Sha'ban also. There are some uh, rulings the scholars have mentioned about that though, and some of it maybe will come up later on, that you should not begin any fasting in the second half of the month of Sha'ban unless you've been doing some fasting in the first half of the month of Sha'ban. Because otherwise it is not correct to begin fasting just a couple of weeks before Ramadan. If you've been doing it in the first half of Sha'ban, then okay. To do quite a lot of fasting in Sha'ban is good. But if you've not done anything in the first half of Sha'ban, you should not start and begin to fast in the second half of Sha'ban. That is according to some scholars. Also we have here the hadith of Abu Dhar, radiyallahu anhu qal, أَمَرَنَا رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ أَنْ نَسُومَ مِنَ شَهْرِ ثَلَاثَةَ أَيَّامِ ثَلَاثَ عَشَرَةَ وَأَرْبَعَ عَشَرَةَ وَخَمْسَ عَشَرَةَ That the Prophet ﷺ commanded us to fast three days from every month. Commanded us to fast three days from every month. The 13th and the 14th and the 15th. This is another type of optional fasting, the three days out of every month, and the 13th and the 14th and the 15th are known as the white days, ayyam al-bil, ayyam where the sun, or rather where the moon is the full moon, where the moon is the full moon, those three days known as the white days, then it is sunnah to fast on those days too. This is another sunnah in terms of fasting outside of Ramadan. So you can see already, just when Ramadan finishes, there are still plenty of opportunities in the sunnah for fasting outside of Ramadan. You have the day of Arafah, you have the day of Ashura, with the day that goes with it. You have the Mondays, you have the Thursdays that we are aware of too. You have the three days of every month you can do. You have the six days of Shawwal you can do. There are so many different days of fasting outside of Ramadan too. It's a great mistake that the people think Ramadan when it comes to an end, that's it, no more fasting until next year's Ramadan. No. 
Throughout the year there are so many different days the sunnah has mentioned in regards to fasting. Then there are some other rulings about optional fasting. Remember now we're on the chapter about optional fasting outside of Ramadan and the rulings about certain fasting outside of Ramadan now. One of the rulings is mentioned in the hadith of Abu Hurairah where the Prophet ﷺ said, لا يحل للمرأة أن تصوم وزوجها شاهد إلا بإذنه That it is not permissible for a woman to fast optional fasts outside of Ramadan in the presence of her husband without his permission. It is not permissible for her to fast without the permission of her husband, the optional fasting. Uh, and that is because of the right the husband has with his wife. So she needs to have that permission from her husband because she has certain roles, responsibilities to fulfill within the household as well. Uh, and the, the rights between herself and her husband as well. So in the presence of her husband, she should not fast optional fasts until she mentions that to him as well and has that agreement from him too. If, however, if, however, a woman is not married, then in that case she can fast optional fasts whenever she wants. She has no responsibilities to fulfill with her husband or her household. She's not married. Or, if she is married, but the husband is away on business or away for some other reason, so she's at home in the household by herself. Now she can fast whatever day she wants to. She doesn't have to fulfill any roles or rights or responsibilities with the husband. He's not there. He's away, absent on business or whatever. So then she can fast what she wants, whatever day she wants. But when the husband is there for optional fasting, the woman, the wife should seek permission and agreement from the husband, perhaps the husband has some uh, some requirements or something, so maybe they agree that she can fast on another day, not today. So she should seek permission from the husband for those voluntary fasts. Then it also mentions... Oh, one of the points that we should mention is that this ruling is obviously only an optional fasts. A husband has no right to tell his wife anything when it comes to obligatory fasts. Ramadan is Ramadan. She fasts regardless of what the husband says. It is an obligation upon her now. So this ruling is only upon the ruling of those optional fasts. Uh, what about Ramadan fasts that you have to make up then? Does she have to get permission on what days to do those or not? Because they are technically obligatory fasts. So does she have to get permission for those ones or not? No. It depends. Because those Ramadan days that you have to make up, how long do you have to make them up? A whole year. You have a whole year to make them up. So she would still seek the permission and agreement of her husband on what day she's going to do them. Unless in one circumstance when she doesn't have to. What's the one circumstance? She can just make up those days of Ramadan 
without having to seek permission. Exactly. If it gets right to the end, she's got seven days left to make up and there's only seven days or expected seven or eight days left now till the next Ramadan's about to start. She doesn't need permission now. It's an obligation upon her now, the right of Allah upon her. She has to fast. Whether the husband says yes or no, it's irrelevant now. She's got to make up those days before the Ramadan comes. So in that case, she has to. But in the rest of the year, it's open. It's an option. Anytime, fast today, fast tomorrow, make it up when you want. So she should still seek permission from her husband on what days to do in case other days the husband requires something. Then after that, it mentions the hadith of Abu Sa'id al-Khudri, radiyallahu anhu, anna Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam yawmain, yawm al-fidr wa yawm al-nahr. That the Prophet ﷺ forbade fasting on two days, the day of Eid, the Eid al-Fitr and Eid al-Adha. On both of those days it is impermissible to fast, haram to fast on the days of Eid, but not just the days of Eid, the Ayyam al-Tashriq also, the Big Eid as we say, the days that follow afterwards, the three days that follow afterwards too. They are known as the days of al-Tashriq. And they are days, as the hadith says, ayyamul akli wa shurb. Ayyamul akli wa shurbin. They are days of eating and drinking. And that's why it is known as the Big Eid. That one is known as the Big Eid because you have the day of Eid and then you have these three days after it too. You have these days that are connected to it too where it's haram to fast because the hadith says they are days of eating and drinking. Hence those days together it's become known as the Big Eid therefore. And the other Eid, we call it the small Eid, just the one day. But that is something legitimately mentioned here, that those days from the big Eid, there are extra days with it. You don't fast on those days, they are days of eating and drinking. So impermissible to fast on those types of days, the days of Eid and the, on the big Eid, the other days that are connected with it. Another point mentioned in a hadith of Abu Huraira is لا تختصوا ليلة الجمعة بقيام من بين الليالي ولا تختصوا يوم الجمعة بصيام من بين الأيام إلا أن يكون في سوم يسومه أحدكم The Prophet said do not specify Friday nights for tahajjud for the rest of the year Taraweeh as we call it now, tahajjud, qiyamun layl, it's all the same type of words for the same thing. The prayer that you pray at night after Isha. Taraweeh, as it's known as now. Is taraweeh only for Ramadan or can it be done the rest of the year? Rest of the year, every night of the year, anytime you want. Just the difference is in Ramadan, it is sunnah to come together and pray in congregation. The rest of the year, you just pray by yourself. Get up at night, go to the mosque in your home, you pray your taraweeh. Oh yeah, it's allowed. You're supposed to sunnah. But the hadith says, don't pick out Friday nights on purpose to do it. Don't think Friday night I'm going to get up and do my taraweeh or my tahajjud. Don't specify Friday nights like there's an extra virtue, extra thing about Friday nights by itself. But the point here is, do not specify Fridays for fasting by itself. So if you want to fast, uh, optional fasts, you are not supposed to specify Friday by itself. You're not supposed to fast on a Friday by itself. If you want to fast on a Friday, as the narrations they mention, you are supposed to join a day before it or a day after it. And you have that in the hadith, which is in Al-Bukhari and Muslim, 
لا يصومن احدكم يوم الجمعه الا ان يصوم يوما قبله او يوما بعده do not fast on fridays unless you join a day before it with it or a day after it with it so if you want to fast on a friday you got to do thursday with it or you got to do saturday with it you're not supposed to fast fridays by itself unless it is a routine that it falls into what kind of routine you fasting the three days of every month 13 14 15 it happens to end up as a friday in fact in that case it wouldn't matter because there was always going to be a day connected even if friday ended up as the 13th saturday would be a 14th connected so that one wouldn't matter but in the case of fasting one day missing one day <coughs> fasting one day missing one day so you end up with your fast on the wednesday So Thursday is your day off and you fast on the Friday <coughs> and Saturday is your day off now Friday is ended up as an individual fast in that case allowed because you're on a routine of fasting one day missing one day fasting one day missing one day the fasting of Daud alayhi salam if it happens to fall into your other routine like that then okay you've not specified Friday it's just fallen into your routine like that but you cannot otherwise specify Fridays Then there is the issue of Saturdays. There is a hadith of a Samma bint Busar, لا تصوموا يوم السبت إلا فيما افترض عليكم. Do not fast on Saturdays except the obligatory fasts. What's the obligatory fasts? Ramadan. Outside of Ramadan, all these others we're talking about, they're all optional. You don't get sin if you miss any of these others now. These are all reward if you do them. It says do not fast Saturdays except obligatory fasts. Meaning in Ramadan you can do Saturdays, outside of Ramadan you should never fast Saturdays. That is what the hadith says and that is an opinion of some scholars that you can never, you should never fast a Saturday outside of Ramadan. Ramadan is the only time you fast a Saturday. For the rest of the year you never fast Saturdays. According to this opinion then if somebody wants to fast a Friday they say you can only join on Thursday with it not the Saturday. Many of the other scholars though don't take that opinion because there is some dispute over the authenticity of this hadith to begin with. Some of the scholars they say it's authentic. I believe a Sheikh Al-Albani says it's authentic. And some of the other scholars though they do not accept it to be authentic and even if it is authentic They put it into the context of all the other narrations like the one about Friday you can join a day before or a day after which is Saturday so when they put it into context with everything they say it doesn't mean it's absolutely forbidden or haram to fast on Saturdays there are these types of exceptions and they give also as exceptions what if the day of Arafah ends up on a Saturday or the day of Ashura ends up on a Saturday according to the scholars who say it's haram they say no you can't fast even if it's Arafah, even if it's Ashura. But the others, they say, no, the virtues of the day of Arafah, if it lands on a Saturday, that's a type of exception, you can do it. Ashura, it lands on a Saturday, it's a type of exception, you can do it. So you have a difference of opinion regarding the issue of Saturday. Now there's an issue here there's a narration that says that the prophet sallallahu naha an sawmi yawmi arafa bi arafa 
We said before that fasting on Arafah is a sunnah, you get your expiation of the last year and the upcoming year. Hadith now tells us it is haram to fast on Arafah if you happen to be in Arafah, i.e. if you're actually doing Hajj, the Hajjis don't fast on the day of Arafah. If you're actually in Hajj, you're there on the day of Arafah, in Arafah, you're actually doing Hajj, then there's no fasting on the day of Arafah for the Hajjaj. This is only for people who are not in Hajj, they fast on the day of Arafah. The Hajjis who are there in Hajj, in Arafah, on the day of Arafah, they don't fast. So bear that in mind. The fasting of the day of Arafah is for the non-Hujjaj. If you're a Hajji there, you don't fast on the day of Arafah. <laughs> then the final narration here in this section, it mentions that the Prophet ﷺ said, لا صام من صام الأبد That there is no fasting for the person who fasts forever and continuously. There is a narration where a man came to the Prophet ﷺ and he was talking about how he's going to fast every single day for the rest of his life. And he's going to pray every night without sleeping for the rest of his life. And he mentioned these types of affairs. So the Prophet ﷺ told him that's too much and he gave him some alternative. He said to him, fast three days out of every month. He said, I can do more than that. So the Prophet ﷺ said to him, in that case, fast. He eventually got to the level of saying fast one day and miss one day. In fact, first he said to him, fast one day and miss two days. Then fast one day and miss two days. Fast one day, miss two days. The man said, I can do more than that. So then the Prophet said to him, fast one day and miss one day. Then fast one day, then miss one day. Alternate then. The man said, I can do more than that. The Prophet said, there is no more sunnah than that. That is the maximum sunnah in fasting. Want to do the maximum amount? That's the maximum amount. Fast one day, miss one day. Fast one day, miss one day. It means in the year you're going to be fasting approximately seven months. Full month of Ramadan. And then the other 11 months, you're going to do five and a half months of those. Out of the other 11 months, five and a half months you're going to be fasting. Plus your Ramadan, six and a half months of the year. That's the maximum in the sunnah mentioned. Fast one day, miss one day, fast one day, miss one day. This narration says whoever does more than that basically and fasts continuously all the time every day, then it's as though he hasn't fasted. Because it is not sunnah. To go beyond that and to fast more than that, it's not sunnah. Sunnah is maximum. You can do it then one day, take a day off. Then one day, then take a day off. And in that way you'll end up with six and a half months of fasting in the year. So, that is the sunnah with regards to fasting and there are some optional days that a person can do outside of Ramadan and also some of the prohibitions of the days that are not allowed outside of Ramadan. Any questions or anything before we round off then? Any questions on Ramadan and zakat and any issues before we round off? I have a question, a different subject. This is guy the interview we was talking about yesterday. You know, if you've got a second property and you get rental income, let's say it's, uh, hypothetically you get money and then do you spend it straight away, but then does half my money you earn or not money you spent? Money you've spent is gone. Zakat is due on actual money you have and it's there and a year passes upon it. If that is not the case, then there's no zakat upon you. It's like, you know, if... Uh, 
with gold now or, or cash. Well, look, gold is the easiest example, 85 grams. If you have in your possession, you own 85 grams in weight of gold or more, then zakat is due upon it, 2.5% of the value of that gold. If, for example, now, let's say you get married and they do, they give gold. So they give this girl 85 grams of gold. She's got the amount now. Zakat, is it due or not? Not yet. Not until she's had it for a year. What if during that year, they decide gold prices are pretty good? Let's uh, flog some of it. So they go and sell some of that gold and they cash it in. So now she's got 40 grams left at the end of that year. They got married in January. By the time next January comes, she's only got 40 grams left. But at the time, at the beginning, she had 85 grams. Now, though, in the middle of the year, they sold 40 grams, and they got 45 grams left now. Zakat due or not? Not due. They've not had the minimum quantity where zakat is due for a year. So when you get rental income and the money you're getting, just like your salary you're getting, or the money, your income you get, whatever you spend during the year, you go and spend, you buy this, you buy this, you buy that, whatever, that money's gone. At the end of the year, now you check what have you had for a year, what's there, and you give your zakat on that. Otherwise, what you spent is gone. It's like, for example, now you got 50,000 pounds, and you've had it in your account for a year. It's been there in your account, hovering on the 50 grand mark. So now this year you're going to give zakat on 2.5% of that 50 grand. Next year, by this time next year, you bought yourself a house, mashallah. Nice terraced, 42,000. You bought yourself a nice house. So now next year, you're only going to give zakat on that 8 grand. You've only had 8 grand consistently for the, for the year. That minimum eight grand always stayed, that didn't go anywhere. 42 disappeared. So now your zakat is only going to be on the eight grand. The other 42, if it's a house you bought for yourself to live in, there's no zakat on it. You bought yourself a car, personal car, for your own usage. You spent 45 grand on that, got a new Jaguar, whatever it is. Then all you're going to have at the end is your five grand to pay your zakat on. Money you've gone, you spent, it's gone. You bought yourself new clothes, you bought this, you bought that. You don't start looking at the beginning of the year, what did I have and give zakat on that. Money you spent, you spent. It's only what you have, you give zakat on. What about that 50,000? Um, before you pay zakat, you had another 5,000. So you have 55 now. But that 5,000 is added just one month before you are supposed to Depends pay. Depends how that money came in. If it's your monthly salary, for example, like we said, you don't think about when it came in if it's monthly salary your income and stuff you just work it out whatever even if it was just your last pay package came in two months ago you've not had it for a year but pay packages your income your monthly salaries that type of thing you don't work it out per month and stuff that just once a year whatever you've got you just give your zakat on it because if you don't you can say okay i'm gonna wait till next year to give it on this one okay but if you give it on that now then that's done and by next year, you're just giving it on the 12 months worth of salary and everything added on. It's just simple, nice, straight, simple. Your income, once a year, you just check what you have and you give your zakat on it. Just like that. You don't have to work out my, my monthly packages. Because if you work out monthly packages, you're getting paid every month. Then that means zakat is going to be due every month for you. The pay package you got last May, 
Now this May, zakat is due on it. That amount. The pay package you got last June, next month is going to be due. It's going to be 12 months on that one then. The pay package you got last July, then the zakat is going to become due this July. You can't have a situation where every month you're getting due because of the wages you're working them out per month. It doesn't work like that. For income, you just once a year work it out and pay it off. But you know, you work out what the lowest level you've had every month you're getting paid. No, it's not like that either. No. As long as overall for the year you've had the nisab amount, then that's what counts. It's not per month. So it could be uh, uh, in a given month. As long as long as you don't fall below the minimum uh, quantity, which is, I mean, if it's silver, if you're working out cash. On silver, it's 200 pounds, 220 pounds or something. Meaning anybody who's got in their wealth, 220 pounds roughly it is, zakat is due. So as long as your bank balance never falls below 220 quid, then zakat is due. Regardless of whether you get 10 grand a month, you end up with 2 grand a month, you end up with nothing in the month. Maybe you're unemployed for for 2 or 3 months, but your balance never falls below 220 pounds, you've got enough savings. So zakat will be due. The only time it wouldn't be due is if your balance ever fell below the zakatable amount, which upon silver is only 200 odd pounds. Um, on gold, it's two, two and a half thousand roughly. Aside from charities, what's the sort of criteria for giving to sort of poor people family back home? Is any for zakat, you mean? Yeah. Zakat, if it is family members who you're supposed to Islamically give them money anyway, you can't give them zakat. But if you're Islamically not obliged to give them money, they're not uh, people where they have rights upon you. For example, your wife. Are you obliged Islamically as a right to spend upon your wife and your kids? You are. So you can't now think to yourself, okay, this year, my zakat, that grand, I'll just use that for my wife and kids and I'll buy them the bits and bobs and kill two birds in one stone, you can't, because you're supposed to be feeding your wife and kids anyway, outside of zakat. So then it's not permissible. But in a, a relatives that the, your right is not upon you to give to them. It could be like your second cousin, your third cousin somewhere, uncles, in-law, something like that. Those people, it's not your right to have to feed them ordinarily. So those people you can give zakat to. If they are poor, meaning they don't have enough to suffice themselves, they don't have enough they may have some money, but not enough. They're always in poverty, always in hunger. But you can give it to them. Hmm. Just a quick moment on mortgages. Um, not, not in terms of halal or not. Hmm. If you have a mortgage, should you take that uh, into account as a, as a debt? To work out? A debt for what was the cut? Yes. So if you've got 8,000 pound mortgage or whatever, um, do you take that as a debt when you're working, when you're working out how much money you've got? But it would appear It would appear That it's not permissible to do that Because the mortgage Which is haram in the first place You can't be given an excuse With something haram in the first place So it would appear Allah Maybe there's fatwas But it would appear that you can't Put something like that into your figures And deduct it Because it, it's not permissible in the first place For that to be in your figures so Allah alam, but I don't think you can 
do that, Allah Alam. You can look into the fatawa, but because it's haram in the first place, how can you use something haram to reduce the amount of zakat you're going to pay? That, that, that doesn't make sense, Allah Alam. But you know, just because you have a debt, because a mortgage debt basically means you've got the cash. That's how mortgages work. The banks give you the cash, huh? They buy the house, whatever. So initially, you've been given the cash, then you're paying it off. If you've been given the cash initially, and, and that cash is in your uh, person, you, you have access to it, then that doesn't prevent zakat. Debts don't prevent zakat just like that anyway. If you've taken a debt of somebody for 10 grand to do X, Y, and Z, you want to do this, you want to do that, whatever that reason is, you've right now got 10 grand in your possession. You're a rich person. So even though it's a debt, you've borrowed it of somebody, that's your cash for now, you, you agreed with them, you're not going to pay it back for two years. Right now, you have to give zakat, including that 10 grand, you've got that money, it's yours. Two years later, when the debt is due, that's going to be another issue. Right now, that's your cash, you're doing what you want with it. You're going to build your house with it. You're going to buy your car with it. You're going to do what you want with that cash. You've taken that loan. It's your cash. It's in your pocket. You have to give zakat on it. That's what scholars mentioned. So we're going to have to leave it there anyway. No more classes now till after Eid. Next two weeks off. After Eid, Eid's going to be Tuesday or Wednesday or something. That Sunday afterwards, June the 9th or whatever it is, the first Sunday after Eid, we'll carry on again, inshallah ta'ala. Back to the seerah, seerah of the Prophet ﷺ.